Hi, I'm Dr. Alicia Armitstead. I'm a chiropractor who specializes in nutrition in New York City and Connecticut for 14 years. And today I want to continue part two of emotional well-being. Part one is understanding what emotions really are, that we can choose our thoughts, and a full cycle of communication during meditation can really help. I explained how self-sabotage is what gets in our way of living our healthiest, happiest lives. Self-sabotage is usually due to our subconscious beliefs. The subconscious gets programmed the first seven years of life. That's why psychologists say all our personality gets programmed then. An example is having a conversation while driving. You remember the conversation, but you have no clue what you drove by or how many stops you made, but your subconscious has picked up on all of that in order to drive safely. Remember when you first were learning how to drive and how you had to pay close attention to everything consciously? And then with enough practice, it became automatic. It became subconscious. When it became automatic, you were using the subconscious mind. Subconscious is a habit. It takes 90 days to make a habit. So if you are incorporating salads into your diet, working hard at not eating sugar, or adding exercise into your routine, you have to make more of an effort the first 90 days, and then after that, it becomes easier for you to do in your daily life automatically or on a subconscious level. We have so many subconscious programs. If your brain is running a program for I am happy, then your body and consciousness responds to that. It is how you will feel and create your day. If you feel like such a victim in your life, your consciousness and your body will follow that program. So what if what we want to do is change the programming? Affirmations help, but they only hit the consciousness. It doesn't help the subconscious. For more on subconscious programming, actually, I have a good YouTube video on, it's called Virus of the Mind, and I'll leave the link in the description of the podcast. The subconscious mind processes 40 million bits of information per second, while the conscious mind processes only 40 bits per second. That's amazing to me. When our conscious mind desires something our subconscious mind disagrees with, it's no wonder that our subconscious wins. 40 million bits of information per second. I'm a big believer in mind over body. I mean, even though I work with the body every day, it's actually my respect for the body and the healing journey that allows me to have such respect for the mind as well. When a patient comes to me and tells me that they can't sleep because their job is so stressful, I believe them. For what they believe is their truth, and not working with their truth won't help me or the patient. My goal then, as a healer, is to help the body on the physical level to manage the stress from their job so that they can sleep better. I've had a lot of success in helping people this way, but sometimes I see that the stress is just too much, and then I dig deeper and find out that the patient really needs to do stress management in order to feel better. These lifestyle changes to help the patient deal with their stress so it's not creating so much chaos in their body is key. But sometimes, even with implementing lifestyle changes, the insomnia continues, or they are literally too stressed out and overwhelmed to make the changes. It is in these cases I felt like my ability to help them on their journey was limited until I learned to help 
their subconscious with a technique called Psyche. Our belief systems can get in our way of our healing capacity. What the mind thinks really does play a part, not just in health, but in all aspects of our life. It's not only what we think, but also our subconscious that plays a part. The subconscious brain with the automatic nervous system controls the heartbeat, allows you to digest your food without thinking, allows scars to heal without you having to do anything. Studies show that what you think even affects your genes. For more information, there's a good book called The Biology of Belief, and I have a good YouTube video on that as well. I read the book Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton years ago and was fascinated with the research that shows how genes actually change expression with different thoughts, but he had no way to explain how to change that mind-body connection to help people. He just knew that it happened. Bruce Lipton is a cell biologist and he uses everything he knows about the cell and quantum physics in the book to explain that genes and DNA do not control our biology, that instead DNA is controlled by signals from outside the cell, including the neurological stimulation from our positive and negative thoughts. DNA is not something you inherit from your parents that is written in stone. The code is written in stone, but not all of it is fully used or expressed. The DNA that the cell actually uses and expresses is ever-changing and different parts turn on and off depending on the cell's environment. To change the mind-body connection, the answer is through Psyche. The Psyche process integrates both hemispheres of the brain, producing a whole brain state that allows for us to easily create improved and sustainable behaviors and attitudes, thoughts, and perceptions. The results of a psyche balance may be felt and experienced very quickly, or it may take time, hours, days, weeks. Psyche's motto is an evolution of consciousness, which I couldn't agree with more. It really does have the ability to help you identify belief patterns that no longer serve you and then reprogram new belief systems so you can live the life you want. This reprogramming is due to using specific neurological techniques to build new neural pathways and take out the electrical charge of old neurological pathways to literally have your brain fire differently. I love the results that I see in my office using Psyche. Another one of my tools to get me through a rough time is something I created called Hopetense. Hopetense is where acceptance and hope meet in a current situation to bring about clarity, wisdom, and discernment. To have Hopetense, the first step is to find the courage to look at the situation differently than you have been doing. Yes, courage. It takes courage to look at the situation differently. It takes courage to let go. We have trouble letting go because we feel there is something to be gained from looking at the situation from our perspective. What satisfaction do we gain? We have to be gaining something, otherwise we would not be viewing it that way. Do we gain a sense of power or a sense of safety? Maybe we gain a sense of victimization? Yes, wanting to feel like a victim is what we sometimes prefer because then we don't have to take any responsibility for the situation. 
having it be the other person's fault is the payoff for thinking of ourselves as a victim. We often choose to blame others rather than to take responsibility. So it takes courage to make that transition to choose not to blame others. It is with responsibility that empowerment comes to do something about the situation instead of the situation doing something to us. Sometimes we truly are a victim of unforeseen circumstances, and even though there is no responsibility to take, we can still find hope tense when we have the courage to find the meaning in our suffering. Victor Frankl, in his book, Man Searches for Meaning, tells the story of how he survived the Holocaust by finding personal meaning in the experience, which gave him the will to live through it. Frankl expresses in his writing a strong relationship between meaningless and criminal behaviors, addictions, and oppression. Without meaning, people fill the void with pleasure, power, materialism, hatred, boredom, or neurotic obsessions and compulsions. Frankl writes, in spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in a concentration camp, it was possible for spiritual life to deepen. The experience of camp life show that man does not have a choice of action. There were enough examples often of heroic nature which proved that apathy could be overcome, irritability suppressed. Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom, of independence of mind, even in such terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. They offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of his human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance, to choose one's own way, and there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour offered the opportunity to make a decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. He continues, the way in which a man accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way in which he takes up his cross, gives him ample opportunity to add a deeper meaning to his life. He may remain brave, dignified, and unselfish. Or, in the bitter fight for self-preservation, he may forget his human dignity and become no more than an animal. Here lies the chance for a man either to make use of or forgo the opportunities of attaining the moral values that a difficult situation may afford him. And this decides whether he is worthy of his suffering or not. Of the prisoners, only a few kept their inner liberty and obtained those values which their suffering afforded. But even one such example is sufficient proof that man's inner strength may raise him above his outward fate. Such men are not only in concentration camps. Everywhere, man is confronted with fate, with the chance of achieving something through his own suffering. One could make a victory of those experiences, turning life into an inner triumph, 
or one could ignore the challenge and simply vegetate, as did a majority of the prisoners. One time a prisoner was trying to raise morale and Frankel explains, he talked about the many comrades who had died in the last few days, whether of sickness or suicide, but he also mentioned what may have been the real reason for their deaths, giving up hope. Whoever was still alive had reason for hope, health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in society, all could be achieved again or restored. After all, we still had our bones intact. Yes, that's what gave them hopedness, that their bones were still intact. They had nothing, and I mean nothing left other than their body, which was malnourished, cold, and in pain with a high chance of being diseased, but they still had it. Think about the courage it took to find hopedness in such a situation in order to live another day or even another moment. Frankel's writing is a perfect example of how the situation doesn't have to change. Only the way you think about it does. When in a challenging situation, what do you do first? Does your mind go to worst-case scenario? Do you go into denial? Do you blame others? The reason I ask is because it matters. The outcome of the situation only depends on one thing, how you think about it. What you think about it matters because thoughts lead to feelings, feelings lead to actions, and actions lead to outcome. You may be in a situation you think you don't have any control over, but you do. You have 100% control over what you think. So why not be a tragic optimist? An optimist is a person who always believes in the good. A tragic optimist is someone who, no matter how tragic the situation is, believes that the higher power, spirit, universal intelligence, etc., has a plan for all things to come to good who believe in such, even if that coming to good is death. Death does not have to be bad, for it is the release of suffering. A tragic optimist has the ability to experience anything, and in that ability is a power so great that it can change the world. Gandhi was a tragic optimist, so was Nelson Mandela, and who knows where the world would be without these people. To be a tragic optimist, the key is to have enough discipline to stop and think before acting. We all get in trouble when we are reactive, which is acting without thinking. But it's best to be active, which is to act with thinking. Thinking is the process of being in the now. Thinking allows you to take in all that you can in the moment and make the best possible choice. Whereas when you were reactive, we can't take in much at all because we're too busy with what we're feeling. At times, emotions can get in the way of thinking clearly, especially emotions of overwhelm, guilt, fear, grief, or anger. Make a pact with yourself that the next time you are feeling these things during a heated conversation, take time out. Recollect yourself and then try the conversation again when you can be more centered and think clear. If we don't take time out, we act from our emotions and this reliance on our instincts tends to get us in more trouble. We do and say things we tend to regret and in this way we lose our own personal power. The placebo effect is a prime example of how what we think matters. 
Research shows that taking a placebo, a sugar pill, actually makes a change in 33% of the time. That means that one out of three times, if you believe it's going to work, then it will. The same can be said for if you don't think it'll work, then no matter what it is, you're right. It won't work precisely because you decided it wouldn't. So if you have a choice in the matter, why not choose optimism? Know that you always have a choice. And another tool I like to use actually uses acupuncture points to release emotions. The chemical reactions that occur in the brain with thoughts then creates chemical reactions in the rest of the body, leading to butterflies in the stomach, or you're so nervous you could throw up, or you have stomach knots, you know, depending on what you're feeling. Or maybe stress causes headaches. The body feels emotions. A great book to explain this mind-body connection is called Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. The book is very good at explaining how emotions manifest disease in the body and what emotions are linked to what diseases. So to help with emotional well-being, if you tap certain acupuncture points, you can get the body to release stuck emotions. The technique I learned years ago, it was called emotional freedom technique, and it's now more well-known as tapping. There's great books and YouTube videos out there explaining and showing you the points, but the basis is by applying pressure to certain acupuncture points, tapping works on the meridian of the body to release the emotional energy. Not only will you emotionally feel better after tapping, but because emotional stress can impede the natural healing of the body, once blocked energy is released, I have seen patients physical issues, the chronic pain, their stomach aches, their headaches get better with tapping. Emotional freedom technique or tapping started in the 1990s by Gary Craig, and I'll leave a link for a video that demonstrates it. EFT or tapping can be explained by one, you identify the issue. You make a mental note of what's bothering you, This becomes the target at which you aim the EFT or tapping. Examples might be sore shoulder, my father embarrassing me at age 8, or wanting to do well on a test. Be sure you are only targeting one issue at a time. As you will learn, if you combine issues, the process will compromise your results. The second step, too, is to test the initial intensity. Here you will establish a before level of the issue's intensity by assigning a number to it on a scale 0 to 10, where 10 is the worst the issue has ever been and 0 is no problem whatsoever. This serves as a benchmark so we can compare our progress after each round of the tapping. If, for an example, we start at an 8 and eventually after rounds of tapping we label it a 4, then we know we have achieved a 50% improvement. For emotional issues, you can recreate the memories in your mind and assess their discomfort. For physical ailments, you can simply assess the existing pain or discomfort. And for performance issues, you can attempt the desired performance level and measure how close you come to it. Three, the setup is a process that we use to start each round of tapping. You design a simple phrase or saying, 
that helps you release what you need to while tapping the fleshy part of the outside of your hand, either hand, between the top of the wrist and the base of the baby finger or the pinky finger. In this way, you let your system know what you're trying to address. When designing the phrase, there's two goals to achieve. One, acknowledge the problem. And two, accept yourself in spite of it. So the main phrase that you're taught in tapping is to say, even though I have blank, I deeply and completely love and accept myself. And the blank represents the problem. Even though I have this headache, I deeply and completely love and accept myself. Even though I have this fear of heights, I deeply and completely love and accept myself. And then the fourth step is where you do all the different tappings and all the different points. Keep saying the phrase, even though blank, I deeply and completely love and accept myself. And then after tapping, the last step, number five, is to test the intensity again. Finally, you establish an after level of the issue's intensity by assigning a number to it on the scale 0 to 10 and compare it with the number you had before to see how much progress you have made. If you are not down to a 0, then repeat the process until you either achieve 0 or you plateau at some level. Sometimes we are highly aware of what is bothering us, and so figuring out what phrase to tap is easy, but other times it can be difficult. Since I believe this is a strong tool to help heal, I have seen where a patient picks the wrong phrase or words to tap, and so tapping actually has a negative impact on the patient. So to help prevent this, I muscle test the chakras first, and then depending on the chakra and what chakra went weak, I find the positive affirmation that makes the weak chakra go strong. Then while tapping, the patient is to say that affirmation at every point to help reset the chakra energy. And patients repeatedly report feeling lighter, breathing easier, physical relief after tapping this way. Tapping is a great tool to help with any feelings of stress to get both the mind and the body to relax and heal. So we now talked about meditation with the full cycle of communication. We talked about hopetons and psyche and tapping. So you have a lot of tools that you can try out in order to manage your stress and thoughts for a healthier, happier life.